Howdy everybody, welcome to the show. This is a fantastic one, and I do have a little bit of a disclaimer, caveat, something. I, I feel, uh, I shouldn't even, I wish we lived in a society where I didn't have to say a disclaimer like this, that it was already a given, that we already knew this, that we already had discussions about dark things like uh, depression and death and suicide and murder and every other dark thing. I, I think that not talking about things doesn't do anyone any good, but uh, I was, uh, I was, you know me, I'm a pretty, uh, I, I'm more than happy to make myself vulnerable. I, I think I just have a penchant for uh, exploring every nook and cranny of my psyche and exposing all of all of the little bits of uh, darkness here and there, and maybe even romanticize it a little too much, and and maybe sometimes tend to overshare a little bit. And but just because it did, uh, the issue of suicide got brought up in the show. I, I talked about it with my guests. They thought it would be a good idea just to let you guys know that there's there are plenty of resources which we're including um, for suicide prevention. If it's something that you, you know you're actually thinking about. Uh, something taking action on, rather than just having a fun philosophical discussion about uh, the the um, amazing amount of abstract ideas and and complex existence that we find ourselves in and the temporariness of it all and uh, but if uh, if you're sitting there actually thinking about taking action before you do it first off not during a pandemic you wait till a pandemic's over jeez this is a passing transient thing this is this is uh, you know this is hard this is a difficult time you you at least wait until the the dark periods over and then you reevaluate things from there that's just that's just my advice is not being a professional in any way. That's the advice I would give anyone like, now, really? That's a, what terrible timing. You're not even giving yourself a chance. Life might be the grandest. This is, this is this incredible. It's going to make all of these changes in the world. Who knows? Things might get worse, but they might also, this might be the catalyst for all of this positive change. We don't know. We do know that it will have a tremendous change in life. And, you know, you wait till COVID is behind us before you, you make some permanent choice like that for crying out loud. That's just logic. That's just reason, you know. And I wish that we could have more conversations. Oh, I think the world would be a better place if we were able to have more open conversations on this subject. I can promise you, and if there's not already research out there, I am very confident that research would reveal this doesn't cover every single case for every single person, but I, I can promise you that it would reveal that more that we normalize having these conversations, the less suicide would actually happen. 
I truly believe that. That's why I share these things. That's why I want you to know that you aren't alone out there if you are experiencing these things. But if you think about taking action, you're sitting there planning things, before you do that, talk to a professional. I'm not a professional. <laughs> I'm not a professional. Like, come on. I shouldn't even need to explain that. But... <laughs> <laughs> Talk to a professional for crying out loud. All right, do me a favor. Uh, suicide prevention is 1-800-273-8255. They're available 24-7 um, and uh, uh, seven days a week, you know, 24-7, uh, seven days. I'll forgive myself for that one. It's fine. Doesn't matter. Uh, so these are all recommended by by my guests, just for handy resources that they support and recommend. Suicide Prevention Life uh, slash chat is a free online chat staffed by professionals. It's free. Check it out. Maybe you're just curious. I'm kind of curious. I might check that out. Um, Oh, you can also text 741741. Ooh, that's 741. That's right, just the left side of the beep, boop, boop. Um, for crisis text support, crisistextline.org to message them through Facebook or chat online. So there you go. And by the way, if any are worried about me or something like that because of the things that I express on here, that's very sweet, very kind of you. I would say that uh, I would say that I'm a little, I'm probably a little more worried about people that aren't comfortable expressing themselves and maybe hiding uh, some things that the people that that we should really kind of be vigilant for and be mindful of and and uh, see if we can create safe spaces for them to open up because from my end of things when I get to actually talk and express these things it's it's the best that I feel in life I I love uh, I love sharing these um, these conversations and uh, and one of my great joys in life so please don't be worried about me when you hear me talking about uh, different um, uh, suicidal thoughts and stuff that I've had in my past. Only sharing. Just think it's interesting. That's all. All right. So just a little disclaimer for you. I hope you enjoy this episode. It's a really fantastic one. Did I say that? How often do I say? Eh, I don't know. This time I mean it. How do you? I don't know how to... Mm. Is there anyone out there? You guys listen to any podcasts and the hosts are like, you know when it's a doozy and you know when it's a real good, exciting one. Do you know? Do I have a tell? <laughs> uh, this is, uh, these two, here's, here's how you know. Because this was such a fantastic conversation. And uh, Daryl and, and uh, both my guests, if they, if they have, uh, um, if they, Sarah as well, if, if she has other things to promote in the future. But Daryl already has a second book on in the works. And as soon as that comes out, I promise you, I'm going to have him back on because these two were absolutely fantastic. So enjoy the show. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. You guys are super cool. I hope you are uh, hanging in there. And uh, I, my, uh, this is uh, an especially... Um, 
a rough time of year for a lot of people and an especially rough time globally for a pandemic. So uh, I hope you're I hope you're staying safe. I hope you're staying sane-ish. Sandy's slightly overrated in my opinion or what our idea of it is. But I hope that you're well. I hope you're not uh, struggling. I hope you're not suffering. And if you are suffering, I hope you're still finding ways to thrive within that suffering, which is the subject of the show today. You guys are awesome. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. I have a very special episode today. We have two guests joining us, authors of the book, The Courage to Suffer, a new clinical framework for life's greatest crises. Please welcome Daryl and Sarah Van Tongeron. Oh, I said it wrong, didn't ah, I? What's so the, close. Oh, what's <laughs> that, that, it's more fun that I said it wrong. What's it, uh, how do you pronounce your last name? Van Tongren. Like a, Van like a grin. <laughs> I, I, I wanted to make it, what's the chocolate bar? Toblerone? Or oh, something? Toblerone. Yeah. Toblerone. <laughs> we could be the Van Toblerones. That'd be even better. Well, you guys look so sweet that I... Uh, <laughs> Uh, you, well, can, thank you. Yes. you can see the association yes, right. yeah. creating confusion. Um, so I I started digging into your uh, book and uh, and read the majority of it. I'm an exceptionally slow reader, but I I got through uh, the the meat of it. It's fantastic. Uh, it, it's it's in the wheelhouse of a lot of stuff I was uh, uh, thinking about recently with with people um, with COVID and everything kind of uh, dealing with issues of mortality. And oh my goodness, I forgot we might die one day. <laughs> oh, fingers crossed <laughs> that doesn't happen, but now we might have to, <laughs> we might have to address this new reality. And I, I was just kind of searching around for, for different ways in which people process and cope and think about things like that. I came across some of your work and I'm so excited to talk with both of you. Could you introduce yourselves a little bit for the audience? Yeah, sure. I'm Sarah Van Tongren. So I am a clinical social worker, psychotherapist. And so I have a private practice um, in Holland, Michigan and see clients largely that are have significant existential uh, angst or yuck, as I, they like to call it, <laughs> existential <laughs> yuck. Um, and that sort of became a specialty of mine throughout my career, just in the various fields I worked in, whether it was medical social work, working with people who were terminally ill, the foster care system, interpartnered violence shelters. So um, it sort of was a, this book was a compilation of a lot of the the clinical work. And then honestly, a lot of the conversations we had over the dinner table. So... <laughs> And and uh, before we get to you, Daryl, is it okay for me to use existential yuck now and try to popularize it, or are you Please staking do. claim on that? Is oh no, it... just you know, TM, and then just <laughs> reference me. That's sure, great. Sure. I love that. Uh, and I'm uh, Daryl Van Tonger, and uh, I'm an associate professor of psychology at Hope College. 
so I do research on uh, kind of really big issues. So things like meaning in life, uh, religion. Well, it started off as terror management. Yeah. That's, uh, that's how it started. Right. I, I got into all of this um, by studying uh, with Tom Pazinski, who is one of the founders of terror management theory, which is a, a broad social psychological theory that suggests a lot of what we do as humans is oriented around the fact that we realize we're going to die. And there's a huge amount of anxiety that results from that awareness. And so that, that kind of launched me into the, the field of existential, uh, experimental existential psychology. Uh, and I've studied meaning in life, religion, and then virtues like forgiveness and humility. So things that people think they like to talk about, um, but are usually conversation killers when you're on an airplane. Yeah, like we go to a dinner party and, you know, everyone wants <laughs> to talk about it and tell them they don't want to talk about it. <laughs> yeah. So. Uh, that that's it, it kind of kills the mood a little bit. See, this is, you know, I guess a lot of people are the opposite from myself because I've been searching for these conversations my whole life. This was like yeah. a huge source of frustration for me as a child where I would uh, want to have or not even... Yeah, even especially my younger years, teenage years, stuff like that. But uh, even early on in life, I remember having, looking back, pretty natural, just big questions. What happens when you die should come along with where do babies come from? And every, right. I think these are like pretty natural. I think kids are going to think of these questions regardless of <laughs> of anything yes. you you uh, uh, do to prevent it and and uh, I I usually felt uh, you know people were apprehensive about talking about them they're often mm -hmm. dismissed and I think it's why I got into smoking weed as a teenager because <laughs> yeah. that was the thing that like loosened people up enough to be like what is the universe yes. <laughs> well you're like I was asking that this morning <laughs> yeah I was just like fine I'll get high if we could talk about death <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so uh, so terror management is because when you say that I think about error management theory but it's it's not the same as that no no it's not the same um, i mean I, I can give you kind of a brief overview it just rhymes yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah it just rhymes. that's the <laughs> only <laughs> thing that's that it so, so it sounds like you're interested in it so uh terror management theory was uh developed by tom pazinski jeff greenberg and sheldon solomon so three social psychologists who uh did their grad work at university of kansas and who read ernest becker's uh denial of death mm-hmm so this Pulitzer Prize winning uh, cultural anthropologist writes this book about how the majority of human motivation is focused around this idea that humans have, uh, you know, they're like every other animal in that they realize that they too are going to die, right? So every animal is going to die. Humans are no exception, but they're different from every other animal in as much as we have superior intellectual capability and the capacity for self-awareness. Right, so we can mentally time travel. We can think about what we're going to be doing in a week, in a month, in a year. If you go far enough out, you realize you're going to be as old as grandpa, and we just buried grandpa last week. So if that happened to grandpa, that's going to happen to me. Mm. So that should create the potential for overwhelming anxiety, right? Like, as they say, we should be like 
clutching for anti-anxiety medications the sizes of like small backpacks, right? We should just be cowered in fear, realizing that no one's going to remember us, right? We are in, we are, we have no more significance, uh, as they would say, than a lizard or a potato, right? But but we don't like that's a very uncomfortable reality for us to engage in. And so the way that we manage that existential anxiety is we create these cultural worldviews. And these are ways of seeing the world that imbue our life with meaning and significance, right? So I am making a difference, right? I am I am going to live on, right? So, so this happens either through achieving symbolic immortality. So everyone's going to remember me because I was on this podcast and this podcast is going to live forever, right? <laughs> People can access me and, and in some way, my, my memory, my consciousness will live on, yeah. right? I'm going to donate a lot of money. They're going to rename a hospital wing after me, right? They're, I'm going to endow a scholarship that people will remember or through literal immortality. And that's where religion has cornered the market. Right. The only thing better, uh, the only way that you can beat death is just by saying that death is is not permanent. Right. So like by promising that you're going to live forever. And yeah. Oh, that I mean, that's always just been such a I, I was raised really religious and I, I need to uh, I sometimes need to be walked back because I went through the stages of like uh, being being a very angsty ang- atheist as a teenager and then. Um, at first not knowing that was a thing. And then once I, I was like, why isn't everyone this? And then, <laughs> and then eventually like learning enough about evolution to have an appreciation for how many of these belief systems evolved. And, but, um, it did always seem like, uh, like a little bit of a, uh, it's a weird product to sell, to go to church and be like, Hey, uh, give me some money now and you get everything you ever want after you, you we deliver right. this package to you after after you die yeah i think that's the interesting thing and then when you think about religion as it it can answer some of the core existential fears we have you can sort of understand how it came about mm. um but you're right if we view it as like money now for heaven later that it starts to break down a bit (laughs) yeah yeah i mean religion really is like the total existential package right so like what we talk about in our book is we say that there's like these five core x or four like five core existential fears right that everybody has to come to terms with so like one is this idea that um what's called freedom or groundlessness So um, we live in a world that's completely uncertain, but we have to make decisions and bear the responsibility for those decisions where there are like an infinite number of choices. Which is why one of, I mean, and and COVID will hit on each one of these, which is why the world is in a state of existential yuck. So let's just Uh, call that. Well, this is, it's so amazing to, uh, uh, that when I, when I reached out and I looked up your your book, I noticed that was released in February. Like, what yes, an incredible! Right before it, actually, like the official release date was Monday, March March 9th. and then March thirteenth is when we were at Michigan was like just on fire, and so everything shut down on the third, on you know Friday the thirteenth. You guys are like the the person that um, that started like 
a online gardening company like three months before COVID or whatever. Like, hey, we just wrote a book about suffering. Oh, look, world, all of the suffering, the most of it that we've experienced in our lifetime. That's true. (laughs) It's true. We did not foresee that when we started writing it, what, three years ago or whatever? Gosh. Uh, Okay. So you guys aren't behind it. You guys didn't. Plan well, I mean, we, we were in that, that's the official story. The official story is it's coincidental. Yeah, our publisher is very powerful. <laughs> um, yeah, so 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 we have to try. You're like, saying groundless. Yeah, we, yeah. We, have to make, we have to make decisions where we don't know if it's a right decision or not. Right, and this in COVID, it's like, well, should I you know visit my friends or not? Is my family safe or not? Um, or know. even the flip side of what I'm seeing uh, that the existential anxiety that's created when you have no plans and you have to stay home with yourself Mm. and there's nothing else to do. And you feel like you've watched all of Netflix. So like what had, what I've seen this, this existential anxiety raise when there's like this boredom, this ultimate freedom of time that we don't, people don't know what to do with. And so that, that actually creates like ultimate choices of what to do. Yeah. That's a common report. I, I haven't experienced any boredom whatsoever yeah. <laughs> in, in the nine months. This has been the most exciting and dark adventure that I've I've ever been on. But that's an exceptionally common thing. Is yeah. I also had started addressing my relationship with boredom a couple years ago because I realized it was the thing that got me in lots of trouble. I'm in a, mm. a, I'm a bit of an adrenaline junkie and gambler, not so much like going to a casino, but just taking wild chances with my life and career and everything Mm -hmm. else. And so I was already kind of on the path to addressing boredom. And so it's like, oh, this is... This yeah. is what I've been preparing mm-hmm. for. Yeah, you ha- you've been preparing for this. So, <laughs> so you, le- you learn how to sit with the anxiety. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's impressive. Yeah, because most well, people haven't. We live in a world that is constantly inundating us with all sorts of opportunities to not sit with our anxiety. I I think that I, early on in my life, being from like Pleasantville, Wisconsin, my fear was like having this ho-hum existence of like a nine to five thing. And I, and I didn't have much respect for that as a, uh, as a child that I do now as a 40-year-old adult that is probably going to be applying for a nine to five job, like <laughs> any, anything now. But uh, I, I think I just kind of realized that I needed to. I started reframing boredom as as mm-hmm. this this place of actual like security, where mm-hmm. obviously things aren't that bad if I'm if I'm bored right now. I, I've I've taken I've managed enough issues in my life mm-hmm. if I'm able to feel boredom so i actually i actually was able to reframe it as a as a sense of comfort in a way hmm. yeah i like that yeah you, you had met all of these other needs either physiological or psychological needs and yeah you're just like yeah i'm set like yeah that's interesting so, so when you say uh, uh groundlessness though how how exactly are you defining that are are you like one of the things that I really find myself obsessing over is this idea of learned helplessness mm-hmm. of, of just kind of this complete lack of both predictability and control. These, these 
big main uh, like yep. very testable stressors in life there's other yeah. stuff going on too but those are the major players yeah. uh, is that kind of what you're talking about with groundless control is actually another form of an existential fear i see so so yeah i i think the way that we think about it is groundlessness is the real is the realization that you live in a chaotic unstructured world but you have to make you have to make decisions and bear the responsibility for decisions in that chaotic world. Yeah. So like your decision to do this podcast, you saying yes to this means you're saying no to everything else. That bears a lot of responsibility. And sometimes people <laughs> can't handle the fact that they they've entered into realities that foreclosed on other potentialities. And so often the even the option of not choosing is a choice, but people don't often see it like that, where they, you know, like they'll say, well, I'll keep waiting, I'll keep waiting. Well, you're still choosing something, but we we like to, you know, we like to think about that you're choosing this because for, for various different reasons. I, so I have this nasty habit as like being not always the best host in the world of like, I, I read enough of your book to know that this particular thing I'm, so I'll like, I'll know the talking points that I should be bringing up. And then at the same time, I'm like, but also, can you help me? And <laughs> one, of, one of those things that you, that you just, uh, uh, mentioned is, is a thing that comes up one of the things I'm trying to address in terms of finding balance and staying productive, uh, productive in my life as every, everything that productivity was to me in my routines were like traveling from city to city, three cities a week. And now I'm like stuck in one and it's taken this whole other. And so this was always an issue, but it's been heightened by this, this idea that no matter what I'm working on, so you just mentioned what else could we be doing instead of this podcast. No matter what I'm working on, I'm always just beating myself up for whatever it is that I'm not doing. Mm -hmm. And I've always, I was always like this for uh, this. It sounds like this is just a pesky part of the human condition. Yeah. Uh, but I remember being in school, like I, I refused to do homework. I would mm -hmm. do I would like learn math if I was supposed to do English homework <laughs> or like read if I was supposed to do math homework. <laughs> uh, but, but like you just can't, uh, whatever I'm doing, I always want to be, I'm, I'm always so focused on the other thing. Yeah. Fix me. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it sounds like you've you've touched on like a second existential yes. concern, which is identity. That's what I was going to say, too. Mm. It's an identity thing of like, who are you? And so we often look at these external things like tra like I'll say this. We traveled all the time. I think we were often gone maybe three of the four weekends. Um, it was constant, constant, constant. And so it became this identity thing. Um, and then I I do triathlons. And so that became an identity thing. And then, you know, I have all these like interesting things I learned when I'm traveling and that became an identity thing. And then COVID, I can't do any of those things. And so it, I was sort of in this existential identity question when this all happened too, of like, who am I? And then what actually makes me, me. And so when I think about your situation of like, that's a, this is a sort of a chance for you to ask yourself, yeah, like not only who are you, but like who also do you want to be? And then 
all these existential things that we we posit in our book, which is they they call this like sort of the the secondary wave of existent positive existential psychology or positive psychology is all of this might be pointing to a greater thing is what actually gives your life meaning? Mm. What fulfills you? And so maybe for some people, and maybe in all this, what I've learned about myself is that actually all these things that I thought were so essential to the meaning of my own life, actually my life's quite meaningful even without them. And so it bears the existential question of who am I mm. without those things? Uh, I don't know how you do it without doing triathlons. <laughs> <laughs> I eat a like, lot more bread these days. <laughs> uh, uh, like uh, courage to suffer. I mean, uh, easy for you to say. You clearly just enjoy suffering <laughs> if you're well, doing triathlons. <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, um, uh, so... It, it, do you run into one of the things that I, I I don't know if you mentioned in a section that I didn't get to uh, is I can I can think of a lot of like uh, you know I I've built an idea of of like where you guys have as well you want to help people you 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 have a career you're an author you have these different identities I I have like several different identities and various things that I've tried on in life. I've been successful with some of them. And even when I have success, I'm like, oh, that's kind of like embarrassing. Is that who I am? Do I really care about the, I don't know if there's like imposter syndrome or something that, that comes along with that. But does, does, do you find that this happens even when I, I think you did allude to this a little bit in a, in an aspect, even when people have success in an aspect of it being, you know, not what they hoped it would be, or doesn't scratch the itch they hoped for, you know, whatever else. Yeah. It's like that famous Groucho Marx quote, I think like I refuse to be part of a club that would have me as the member. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's like, sometimes we're, we're so striving towards something. And then as soon as we get it, we're like, Oh, well, if they, if I could achieve it, it must not be that special because <laughs> you know, it, it had much more appeal when it was, when it was elusive. Um, you know, I, I think part of, part of um, addressing the essential reality of identity is shifting from external contingencies of self-worth into internal contingencies of self-worth. And by that, I mean, rather than saying, I'm going to be a person of worth if I do X, Y, and Z, realizing that you're just a person of worth, full stop. And then there can be other things that you enjoy doing. They can add value to your life, but they don't make you any more significant, any more worthwhile, any more um, important. And, and I think as long as people continue to chase external contingencies of self-worth, external versions of beauty or of uh, power or of money, it, it's never going to satisfy. Well, it's the hedonic treadmill. Right. right. So you just keep wanting more and more and more and, you know, the book won't be enough or the you know, one triathlon's not enough or one enough, certain amount of money isn't enough. The house isn't enough. We, we do this in life. Uh, it's, you know, it's what yeah. capitalism, it's what capitalism sells us. <laughs> I want to identify as a bottomless pit of want. <laughs> yes, right. Hooray! Die. I achieved. I did it. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, it's, it is, uh, I, I've, I've, I've told, 
it often bumps people out to hear that like i've you know, a lot of people never have the opportunity to accomplish a dream. And then when you tell people like, well, it's not always all it's cracked up to be. People are like, well, that's a very privileged point of view. And it's that I understand that. But at the same time, I'm usually like, well, let me tell you what it looks like from the peak of Mount Nowhere. Mm -hmm. It looks like just a bunch of other hills to climb mm -hmm. that are equally as uneventful once you get to the top of it. And it's just the climb upwards. That's the whole, you know, the journey more than the yeah. goal. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it happens on, like beyond just career. Like even if, um, yeah, I mean, I remember the first, uh, uh, I, I, I run marathons too. So like I, uh, the first time I ran my first marathon, I actually was like sad after it was over. And I looked back and I was like, it wasn't actually the marathon that was that fun. It was like the months of training, like the anticipation, yeah. right? Like the, the working up to that. Like once you got there, then you were like, oh, that was it. Like it was just uncomfortable for four hours. Like that was just horrible. Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's funny because from an outsider perspective, I could always be like, yeah, why did you, why did why you did think that, that yeah, was gonna... <laughs> I, I, I'm sure, I'm sure people think about that all the time. Like when I'm on stage, like doing comedy, people are like, and I'm like, no, you should, you could try it too. You know, people are like, no. <laughs> Whoa, why would yeah. you do that? That's pretty low-hanging fruit. <laughs> um, uh, I, I'm curious, if, if I jump around too much, feel no, free fine. to like it's rein fine. me yeah. in and steer the ship in any any way that you want. Yeah. When, but when you talked about isolation, I was also, something really struck me when mm -hmm. I was, I wonder if I can even find it. Um, but, because I want to get into how people can kind of notice and do these it, it seems like we're not the best at self-diagnosis in the first place and when you say like existential yuck it's it's like this is really zeroing in on people having a a, a difficult time um re really accurately defining um uh, what's causing this feeling in fact a couple things. One, I remember uh, I, I broke both of my feet once in uh, hiking. I'm not going to get all into it. My poor audience has heard the story way too many times. <laughs> but um, but a as someone who's had chronic depression for 30 years or something like that, and um, I manage it pretty uh, well. Anxiety negatively affects me a lot, a lot more because I don't have as much experience with it. But anyway, it was the first time. It was like the least depressed I ever was because depression is so associated with this fogginess of like, what is, what's wrong, right? And like I can't put my finger on it. And when my feet were broke, it was like, oh, I know exactly what is wrong with me, right, right now. And there was like almost a sense of comfort in that. What I wanted to bring up was. Um, and, and so you can touch on that and then uh, a number of the 20 other things that I'll throw at you and, until we're so lost that you don't remember the various good <laughs> things that you were going to say in response to the 80 things a while ago that I said. Um, so uh, loneliness is something that I would say that I almost don't experience. It, it, like, 
Like I know, I, I remember in 2015, there was this time when I was like, what's wrong with me? And I was like, I, I had taken a year off from like dating and stuff like that. I just didn't want to deal with it. And like a little over a year later, I'd started getting back into it. And like, I was really feeling off one day and I was like, what is this? And I was like, oh, I'm lonely right now. <laughs> and it was like so exciting because I spend so much time like alone on the road and I like yeah. never feel that. And then, and so I identify as someone who of, of the many things in life, that's something that just doesn't phase me that much. And then I'm reading your book and it got to the section on loneliness and it was like and here's some of the con uh, the common the common symptoms associated with loneliness and i was like ooh i actually think i do have a, 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 a lot of those um so uh, so actually let's use that as a starting like what are some of the common symptoms that you would see with loneliness that that maybe people wouldn't Am I putting you on the spot? Because I know you wrote the book years ago and <laughs> don't, probably don't remember the exact like paragraph that it, you wrote. It'd be great to know that paragraph. I can shoot from the hip a little bit, but yeah, shoot with from the existential hip. yuck being a part of the reality of the clients that I see. So I'm, I'm also curious too, if it's, if I define it, that's the other interesting thing. I, this is totally my tangent. I'll take you on and then we'll join yours. But when you write a book three, four years ago, I didn't understand that till I wrote it, that it's like a concept of a cat of like a picture of what it was. My knowledge was three to four years ago. And so I'm also genuinely curious if it's evolved in some ways or not. Um, um, oh, here we go. Found it. Symptoms, expressions, concerns about isolation have profound effects on your client's daily life and interpersonal functioning. This may come out in two primary ways. First, it may, uh, make maintaining their current relationships more difficult. Your client may report increased anxiety during social situations or difficulty engaging in or maintaining relationships. Like that's me all over the place. <laughs> but I, and the reason I bring it up is because the story I tell myself is just that I like being mm -hmm. alone, that I just like really value my alone time and that I don't really want to, be around people that much but yeah. i uh, i read that and i was like oh is that just the story that i'm telling <laughs> myself to protect me from like social rejection or or whatever well and that's so when we define so uh, highlighting another existential fear is that isolation meaning you truly are the only person that will know what it's like to live your life so I don't know if you have siblings or family members, they may be close to living, like seeing what your life is like, or even a best friend that like knows your up and downs and all those things. But like, truthfully, you are the only person that knows what your life is like. And so there is a vulnerability that comes with saying, uh, I want to be in a relationship or I want to be friendship, dating, marriage with someone because to live and we talk about this like to live life together but like truthfully we're actually always alone and so maybe it is a story yourself that you tell yourself to protect your yourself but i also say this as a therapist i think nothing is a problem unless we make it a problem <laughs> mm -hmm. so we do need sometimes uh those 
protective factors. Otherwise, we we might jump into the the fire of the existential luck <laughs> and live mm-hmm. there. Um, and so I, I know that's what I would say. I don't know what you what you think about it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean. I think what Sarah says is is right on. I mean, the only other thing that I would add is that, you know, a lot of people think that um, being rejected is is like the biggest fear that they might have. And and I might say that what I think might be an even bigger fear is being known and being rejected. So I think what we do is we tend to hide our full selves from other people. So if we are rejected, we can always tell ourselves a story. Well, they didn't know all of me, right? They, they, they're <laughs> yeah. only rejecting this part of me. They're only rejecting this story or this, this image of me. And so like Sarah said, to be completely vulnerable, to be fully known. And then if someone walks away, oh, that's yeah. gutting. Well, right? That's even, gutting. Think about that with like a parent relationship, even like, um, or if you, yeah, if you share something, I, I just think about this too, like how hard is it also for us to fully know ourselves? Like that's so much work I do with my clients in therapy is being like, you being honest with ourselves. That's really hard to say, like, I hurt that my actions that I chose to do willingly, even if I didn't intend them hurt someone else. Like how many stories do we create so we don't have to take responsibility for it? <laughs> like I didn't mean to say that. So I'm sorry. You know, like, but it's like, but we did say that. And so we also sometimes I think the flip side of our book is we are we think that meaning can help solve some of these things, but on the other side, we also all of us are incredible meaning makers where sometimes there's not really meaning. We've just constructed we're great storytellers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I I mean that is that it, it's it's weird that we it is strange that we need that we're constantly searching and we need this sense of I, I I mean the way that I view like when someone's like what's the meaning of life or something like that which I know isn't what you guys are kind of you're talking about meaning in finding meaning within uh life but but it seems like that is just this because that's such a common question and th- that that even like you know kids think to ask so it's not it doesn't require that high of a level of sophistication to ask this seemingly really complex question it seems like that's that's almost more than a more than a, like a meaning of life that you're working toward um like obtaining and finding and then I'll solve it one day it that it seems like that question itself is more prodding you from be- behind and kind of moving you in arbitrary directions and it's just like you just got to keep <laughs> you just got to keep moving just find something that keeps you going and like it really doesn't matter if you're going this way or that way if you just kind of keep <laughs> keep yeah. going it reminds me of my favorite article. I'm sure you're sick of me talking about that. My, my favorite article was, it talks about, uh, who was who the person that wrote it? Uh, Samantha Heinzelman and Laura King. Yeah, she they wrote this, be- it's one of my favorite academic articles that I know that is so cheesy and geeky of me to say, but so they, they talk about it as meaning is oxygen, uh, meaning we don't often realize, it, we don't often realize we don't have it until we don't have it. <laughs> So it's like often something that 
fills us and we, you know, it's not like I'm not thinking about the oxygen that I'm breathing in and out and in and out until maybe I go to Colorado and visit, visit family or friends. And then I'm like huffing and puffing up the the stairs and I'm like, Oh God, I can't breathe. It's like, we don't. And I, I use this example in our book. Like we often don't think about like our brain and our head until we have a headache. And then we're like, oh, my head hurts. And like, then we, that's all we can think about all day. And so mm-hmm. that's how I like to think of even meaning in and of itself is like, often most people just go about their day. And, but then it's often when a crisis happens, that's when we can be struck by some of these bigger questions. I mean, some people may be like you, maybe like us, we were asking them at a young age, but for, for, for the large more portion of the population, because we are actually as humans, meaning constructors, we we go around living lives to sort of avoid these difficult questions. And so we, you know, put all sorts of stories and build them in our minds that we don't ever have to answer them until something like COVID happens. And like, we're just faced with them in our faces. And so for some people, like, this is like legit the first time that they've ever thought they were going to die, um, which yeah. blows my mind. Cause I, I think about that every day <laughs> when I wake up, like, <laughs> Oh, I'm still alive. You know, like that's, that's, that's how I am and sort of the way my brain works. But I think that's why often so many people are just struggling right now is because this is the first time that like they can't solve their existential questions with things they can purchase or buy or do or those kinds of things. Yeah, it won't stop them from trying. Uh, they, <laughs> it won't stop them uh, from trying. <laughs> they, uh, I, I mean, there is, and and uh, the kind of apophonia and the the over perceiving patterns and and assigning meaning where there isn't is is also in full force uh, right now as people mm-hmm. are grasping to their you know favorite conspiracy this and that yes. and everything else, and it, it's um, yeah it, and. I, I tend to be, I find myself being judgmental when someone isn't, isn't like the kind of like abstract thinker mm-hmm. that I am. And I have to remind myself that like, I can barely tie my shoes when it comes to just <laughs> practical matters of like daily tasks or adding something to a calendar and like uh, making sure that I put in the right time. And so uh, like, I'm lost and, and I'm, I'm not. Uh, if I do have to go back and apply for a nine to five job, I would recommend not hiring me. Like, <laughs> I, 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 don't, I don't think that I'm a great employee in that context. I've done factory work and stuff like that. And, uh, and, and so I don't know if there's like bits of trade off there because it seems like, like the number of things like the incredible maze that I have to like get through each day to like get myself out of bed where a lot of people be like, all right, this one's for Jesus. Let's go. (laughs) And uh, that's, that's wonderful. Like I can, I can see why that, (laughs) I can see why that comes in so handy. Yes. Well, there's something called, and we touched on this, but something called depressive realism. So Mm. the reality life is somewhat mundane uh and maybe there isn't meaning of like of life there's maybe meaning in life uh actually is quite depressing yeah so it there is this interesting thing that this this does create a depressive reality um 
Yeah, like like most of us need the positive illusions that we're better than average, but it doesn't take like. Oh, that's my best. That's one of my favorite things that you do in your class. That yeah, you so, so so in my class, I do this poll, and I have people write down like what percentage they think they are compared to ever like the average student. And on average, my class will put themselves in like the mid to high sixties. So like, like for on so in, in terms of like intelligence, how attractive they are, how sociable, how athletic. So like I, on average, everyone thinks they're like in the high sixties. And so I, I give them these results and they're like, yeah, that's about right. And I was like, you realize half of you can't be above average. Like half of you just have to be below average. And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, but you probably still don't think it's you. Like you still think it's someone else, really, but you truly are above average. I can't believe so many other people are wrong and yeah, thinking exactly. about yeah. <laughs> So I, th I think we need these positive illusions to get through life, right? Like we have to think you know, that our book's going to be a bestseller, that, you know, our, our podcast is going to be like a number one, that, you know, everyone's going to remember me. We, we need to have these illusions to keep us going. But the folks that cash out, right, and it sounds like to, to some degree, you might have kind of gotten off of that. They, they, on the one hand, they might be a little bit more depressed, but on the other hand, gosh, they're accurate. So if you're like, I don't know, like, I might be kind of medium or average, <laughs> like, you're not going to be as disappointed, like, when life comes... Uh, when life comes calling. Well, I also like to think think about it too, is like meaningful, like in the sense of, I think there's pleasure involved in just doing a podcast or like, I like to paint. I like to paint. I am terrible. Like, I don't want anyone to ever see what I paint. And that's not the purpose of why I do it. I just feel like a little kid when I do it. And yeah. I like, makes me so happy. And it's a way I get through these terrible Michigan winters where it's so gray. I just like the sound and the feel of the brush strokes, but I'm not doing it because I'm planning on being some like famous artist. So there's also something that, that maybe I think depressive realists also get out of it is just some pleasure sometimes that maybe those uh, meaning makers are, you know, those sort of false sense of overindulgent meaning makers, maybe that they, they don't get, I, I'm not sure. One one of the things that you talk about is coherence, and uh, if you could talk about that a little bit, because I would say, of the things when when I'm reflect when I'm reflecting, this is one of the things that has been really valuable to me, and is a huge source of frustration in my life and it's one of the illusions that i uh, uh, uh what is it? the um not it's like naive realism or something the the cognitive bias where where mm -hmm. where you think that you're like thinking like very objectively and about right. things and everyone else is out of their minds um so so i'm probably suffering um from that a bit but but i I just, uh, like if I'm playing a board game, I don't care if I win or lose the board game, but I get like really hung up. If someone like uses a strategy that like is just makes no sense, I get like hung up on like, do you not understand the rules of this <laughs> game? Like, what are you missing here? That like, did I not explain this? Like, right. do why you would not want to play euchre that? with? Yes, you don't want to play uh, euchre with me. Then that's <laughs> <laughs> for the listeners. Uh, euchre is a Midwest uh, card game that that only exists in the Midwest. That you yes. may not. It's a bit like spades or clubs or something. Um, uh, oh man, now I want to play virtual euchre with you. Right? <laughs> um, right. 
Just it uh, depends on whether or not you want to be my partner. That's the thing. <laughs> uh, there's there's a game Teach You, by the way. That that's a more sophisticated version of euchre. Oh, okay. But but to me, uh, this is when you talk about the what was the de- depressive um, depressive realism. I, like one of the things about COVID for me has been like. Oh, all right. Finally, people people see like this is what it's felt like to be the yeah. whole like everything can fall apart and go wrong at any moment, and and there's there's no no one's coming to help us like no. nobody. And some people are still waiting for that though. That's the interesting thing, right? So you may be this depressive realist of like this is up to us, y'all. Like that's the yeah. truth. But for some people, they're still waiting and building and and trying to make that that meaning. But yeah, yeah you were, you were saying coherence, right? Yeah. So if we think of meaning as coherence, significance, and purpose, coherence is like that first leg of the the tripod. So coherence is when we can make sense of things. Mm. Um, and 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 you were kind of joking, and we were kind of mentioning earlier on, religion is like a is like the total package for that. It just kind of like explains to you how to interpret and organize your social world in a very neat and simplistic way. You also strike me though, um, as someone who has a very high need for cognition. Like you're always thinking, like you're mm-hmm. always kind of working things out in your mind. And and you and my sense is that you want things to kind of fit together. Um now. Uh, one of the the most famous social psychologists right now, his name is Roy Baumeister. He said that you know humans have this myth of greater meaning, and what we need to realize is that sometimes our desire for everything to make sense is a little bit of a fool's errand. And instead, what we need to do the the best way to achieve coherence or a sense of uh, making sense of things, what Sarah and I argue is to realize that some things are just senseless. Like that's an actually, that's a pretty coherent worldview, right? You can make sense of something by saying a tree fell on my car, not because there is a malevolent supernatural agent who was punishing me for something I did when I was eight. It's more of just the tree broke. I happened to park there. It fell in my car. Like some things are just random. And so one of the things that we suggest for people who are really struggling, especially when it comes to coherence, is to free themselves of this need to try to make sense of everything by making sense of things by realizing that they're senseless. And I apologize if that was really too pretzely and I use no. sense too much. But that's that's what so one of the things in our book is we tell our personal story of sort of we we have our like the professional pedigree and all that stuff. But I think what really pushed us into this, because again, we have all these theories in psychology about suffering that just and we would like we were going to therapy and all this stuff and it just wasn't working. We're like, this stuff is just bullcrap like it's terrible it's not like it was written for by some some guy who's never struggled before in his life so that was part of yeah. our attempt to try to put this work out into the world is to say like we need to put this this needs to be better it's just terrible i would i would love if you could share your story a little bit because this is this is like from uh you know sorry to uh i mean from an outsider perspective it's one of these like uh, this is one of these like richly like beautiful scenarios of like we all get to benefit from your <laughs> unfortunate yeah. uh, su- suffering. <laughs> well, well, there, there's this there's this book that I that I think about all the time, even though I haven't even finished the book. I don't know why I haven't, but it's but I just love the idea of it so much. Um, and it's I have it on my shelf. It's 
um, in, injured injured brains of medical minds and it's all it's all stories of people that like this person researched alzheimer's their whole life and then they got alzheimer's <laughs> and then they were able to like report and yeah. and and talk about the experience of having alzheimer's from both a personal narrative and they Plus, they brought yeah. in their experience all of their training and understanding to it. And that's horrible that that person got <laughs> Alzheimer's. But, like, it's also there's something like, I mean, life is tragic life is anyway. Tragic. It might as well yes. be tragic and beautiful. Yes. And, 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 and kind of funny. Yes. I mean, that's, yeah. that's where we find it is there is there is this sort of ironic humor of, I think when you can embrace the senselessness of it, there is something that can be beautiful in it. And so yeah. I, I do hear that. So, so I'm in, so 2010, I'm in grad school. Sarah has just finished grad school. Um, I'm researching meaning in life. Like I literally had just gotten a paper published where we brought people in the lab and we implicitly threatened their sense of meaning in life. Like we basically told them their life was meaningless uh, using so yeah right i love that <laughs> and basically the, the response was everyone was like no 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 my life's really meaningful like they got really defensive okay and so this is this is so that's how many and then i'm working with um children who have a long-term terminal diagnosis so like muscular dystrophy cystic fibrosis horrible horrible um horrible diagnosis that they basically the life that they have is getting worse by each year passing year so i'm doing that work you're <laughs> I'm, I'm studying how people like are ardently clinging to the fact that life is meaningful can we that's too fun of a study to not dig into <laughs> a little okay, bit yeah, can you okay, uh, can you just yeah. can you please just like what do you do you want okay. someone to feel <laughs> so <laughs> yes how do you set up and threaten someone's meaning so, well because yeah. it sounds like you might have stumbled upon a weird new form of like spite therapy right too. Exactly. <laughs> so so we uh we we bring participants in the lab and i designed this um computer program where we tell them to stare at a dot in the center of the screen and then what's going to happen <laughs> is a, a, a word is going to come up and it's either going to be a, a color or a number and they have to press on the keyboard oh it's a color or it's a number as fast as they can so while they're staring at the dot we flash in the periphery of the screen like in the four corners of the screen a word related to meaninglessness but we only flash it for like 50 milliseconds. So it's like they can, you can process it on an, like an implicit level. It's like our, right. it's the way that our brain and processes information is faster than what our eyes can see. So it's like a flicker, right? It's just a flicker. So basically we flicker them and one group gets the meaningless words. The other word, the other group gets neutral words. We ask them to report how meaningful life is, how religious they are. Do you remember some of those meaningless words? Yeah. Like uh, chaotic, meaningless, uh, you know, purposeless. They basically report that they're more religious, life is more meaningful, after we threaten them. So my research assistant puts it in, and she's like, this is bogus, no way. And I, I bring it to my advisor, and he, and he, you know, as any good revise, advisor said, he said, okay, replicate it. Like, do it again. So we do it again, we give them more surveys, sure enough, we replicate it, we do it again. Um, and so basically, this, this like subliminal implicit threat... Re resulted in people doubling down. They said that their life was more meaningful. They had uh, a greater need for certainty. They had higher self-esteem. They were more religious, but they were less 
uh, likely to engage religious doubt. So they wanted religious certainty. They didn't want religious doubt. Hmm. So, you know, I, I, I just do this, this study where I psychologically unhinge and unnerve people. I'm feeling pretty good about myself. <laughs> yeah. Then I get, uh, I get a phone call and it's my brother and he's like, Hey, and you um, and your brother are really yeah, close. We're really close. We talk like twice a week. And he's like, Hey, um, remember seven years ago, how I had to have that emergency surgery. So seven years prior, my brother had an aortic dissection, which for people who are not familiar with that, that's what John Ritter, the actor had. It's basically like your, your aorta, the thing that pumps the blood everywhere in yes. your whole body. It just, it just rips in half basically. Um, and he went to the hospital with like chest and back pain uh, and within like a couple hours had emergency surgery. So seven years prior, he had had that surgery. He only had a 5% chance of living and he survived. He was what, 20? He was 27. And so people were like, oh, this is amazing. Like you defied all the odds. You know, they thought that they had repaired it in a way. They even thought that his heart was going to outlive him. They're like, we, we put in a, a graph in there that's going to live, you know, well past you. They have three kids. So he and his wife after that are like, let's let's get serious. Like we're going to have kids. Like they, they have their kids. Um, so he calls me. He's like, hey, remember I had that surgery seven years ago? I just have to have like a routine like a routine follow-up. Like a little, like a... They just got to go in. They just got to fix a few things. Um, touch it up. Touch it up. I have a 95% chance of success. I'm like, oh, like these are, these odds are flipped. Like I'm feeling pretty good. I was like, but you know what? I think I'd like to still see you. So I flew out there. We spent a week together. And the day before he was going to have a surgery, he gets a cold. And he comes down with a cold. And he's like, well, whatever. They have to delay the surgery two weeks. So we just like get to hang out. My brother and I have like this great time and we hang out. I fly home. He has the surgery two weeks later, um, and it doesn't go well. So both times he was in the 5%. So the first mm -hmm. time he only had a 5% chance of surviving, and he did. That second time, he had a 5% chance of not surviving, and after three weeks of, of okay. really fighting. And, and, and of just yeah. unimaginable horrificness yeah. in the ICU. and yeah. Just, yeah, he passed away. And so here he is. He's 34. His wife is 33. And they've got three kids under the age of six, including like a, a 10 or 11 month old. And that is totally different than studying meaninglessness, right? That's totally different than acknowledging that life might be meaningless. But or to, random. Or random. <laughs> but like to actually experience the meaninglessness, the senselessness, the purposelessness of life by having someone you love die and, and, and leave three kids. Well, and we, we, I'm actually, uh, I joke, I'm a recovering pastor's kid. So I grew up very religious my, mm -hmm. uh, myself, uh, very, what I would call it very fundamentally, uh, conservative Christianity is what I would call it now looking back on it. And then you, you as well were, um, yeah, raised very kind of conservative it, religious. And so it was, so there's that piece of this happening and then how some people responded to it just felt like shocking. Well, like, well, at least he's in heaven. You know, those stupid things people say, like, heaven needed another angel. So mm -hmm. I honestly, I don't know if you can cuss in this show, but I cuss. <laughs> like, I was like, okay. I was like, that's just bullshit. Like, uh, yeah. are you kidding? Like, these, his right. kid needed a kid. Like, his dad here. Like, I don't know what you're saying. Like, and so yeah. it just... It sent us for a tailspin. And then on top yeah. of that, they, I, yeah, your they brother like, was still, he was still alive fighting for his life at the ICU. And I remember when the doctor ran, like ran around the corner. Yeah. And he was like, um, yeah, who's a relative here? And like, I raised my hand, my dad, my sister. He's like, you all need to get 
checked immediately because like, we're pretty sure this thing's genetic. Mm-hmm. And so I got checked. My sister got checked. My dad got checked. My dad had it. And in fact, it claimed his life two years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, my sister has the same condition, but she's being monitored. And so she's hanging in there. I've been checked so far. I'm okay. Um, mm-hmm. But at that time they said, oh yeah, um, we know that you're 27 and 28, but don't have kids because it's so genetic. It's so genetic. Like, so all of Daryl's brother's kids have to get checked. All of his sister's kids have to get checked. Like every mm-hmm. year, this is such a wildly genetic thing that has, but, but no genetic test right now. It's one of the ones that you can't test for. You just have to do symptom. So you don't mm-hmm. know you're dying from it until you know you're dying from it. Wow. And so they're like, don't have kids. And we're just like, oh, that's like a big thing to tell people in their late 20s. Like, okay. Um, and then, you know, that, and that was, a, that was like a colossal loss. But then we were, we, we got some second opinion several years later. Well, you, it, it's a long story and there's lots of marriage implications on that. But uh, <laughs> you start, you're saying it, so and then it's okay. And it, no, it was like a big fight between us because I was, I took it as like, this is the universe saying no. <laughs> yeah. and, and you're like, Again, I think that meaning making. Yeah, I was like, well, you but know. But I want to be a dad. And this is right. what I've always wanted. And like, you know, and, and, and so we just approached it. Again, talk about isolation. We went through a very similar thing and both of us viewed it very differently. Um, and then ultimately, I decided I did a thing of like, if the world is random and chaotic, chaotic and if it wants it, then sure, let's have kids. And then mm. two years later of infertility, um, which was just, that's what, for me, it just was unraveling, unraveling, unraveling. And I feel like that was the thing I could no longer, like all the religious constructs of meaning that I had constructed before then, it just all fell. Um, And so I talk about a spin of meaninglessness, I think. Um, And that was part of it. Like I, I, I working with my clients whose kids were dying of genetic conditions, Um, I realized I was pretty cold hearted in my treatment towards them. I think I really, I realized I, I didn't understand the grief that they were in or the shock that they were in. And maybe even some of the decisions they would make of like why they were searching for meaning so hard. Um, and so I, I, I was filled with a lot more compassion after all of that too. Um, on top of realizing that the field is very short in understanding suffering. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. Like like typical CBT approaches would be like, oh, you just have irrational thoughts. Well, like that's what would happen. So like we, our marriage was struggling, all this, we'd go to therapy and they'd be like, well, like literally a doctor told Daryl at one point, um, it, great genetic doctor, one of the best in the area said, you know, because of this condition, if you touch him to too hard or if he jostles against something or he could just be walking down the street and he could explode like spontaneously combust <laughs> kind of the words. and we're like really like that's the that's so the, the thing. talk about anxiety like i i you know what i'm saying like i'd bump them or you know something like that and i was thinking like 
you know, like, is it happening? Is <laughs> right. And so like CBT, right, so cognitive behavioral therapy, you'd be like, you know, that's an irrational thought. And it's like, well, if a doctor said that, you know, his aorta could just like dislodge at any moment, it's actually not super irrational. Right. And that the fact that it's not an irrational thought should bring me comfort and it doesn't. Like, right. <laughs> that's what the yeah. theory goes, is that if you take all your cognitive distortions out, then you should, if you think rationally, then you should be able to change the way you feel mm. that was just a bunch of baloney to be honest so so i mean let's just sub in uh someone with a terminal illness from us right so like let this if we're not, we're not an example anymore someone who comes in and has a terminal illness and they're like okay like cancer. What's, yeah like, what's the problem they're like well i'm anxious about dying of cancer well what's your thoughts i'm gonna, I'm die. gonna die of cancer you're like well yeah okay like there, there's no irrationality <laughs> there it's like you actually see the world pretty clearly right like what so people who have kind of ventured to the edge of the existential cliff and peered off and over, they actually have a pretty clear view of the way the world works, right? It's that depressive realism again, right? Like realizing that that they're going to die. Uh, I don't want to call that a gift because that's just nonsense, but there is a sense of clarity that comes in accepting our human condition, right? In accepting the fact that the world's chaotic and senseless. We're isolated. We have to figure out our own identity. The only certainty in life is death. Um, and we live in a world that's seemingly objectively meaningless. Mm. Um, it's pretty clarifying. And so what we want to do is, one, how do you help people who are in those situations where it's not just, oh, fix a thought or rearrange an emotional experience, but they've really experienced profound something that's profoundly and indelibly changed their life. And then second, is there a way that we can help them that would orient them towards like a life of flourishing? Like, is there a way that you can live authentically in the knowledge of these existential realities that we've been talking about? Yeah, like can you live a meaningful life with depressive realism? Yeah, that, I, that's, the, that's the incredible aspect of, is the idea of, uh, um, that you talk about uh, quite a bit in the book is is flourishing and suffering. That's the important aspect. I I know from because I've I've never experienced anything um, like that. I've, I've just uh, most of my stuff is just like, hey, why are people? I, why is it every time like I feel down, someone throws some dumb platitude at me? Are you guys <laughs> insane? And that. And that drives me out of my mind. And I'm just like, why does it never? And so there was something like, there's something about like the, the dark states that always, I, I worry I romanticize them too much uh, because they feel like so real to me. And, and there's like a richness to uh, like the tragedy of, of life that, that just is so interesting. And uh, I love chaos. Like my, uh, uh, speaking of books I haven't read because I, I one part of my identity is, or uh, haven't finished. It's part of my identity is never finishing anything ever. Is uh, this book Chaos by uh, by James Glick? I think that's his last name. But it's all about like the infinite chaos everywhere, and the and that was just like, wow, what an adventure. Where <laughs> where a lot of people reading that would be like, but this this interferes with all of the ideas that I had uh, that mm -hmm. I had built up and. And thought were true. I, I think, I think the uh, it, the 
the reason why I bring all that up is because when I've erred, it's definitely been to the side of, ah, nothing's worth, uh, all of this is pointless, so nothing's worth Yeah, more of a doing. nihilistic point of view. And that's just as, I've, you know, I've came to understand that it's just as delusional to, you know, to give up on looking for opportunities and and purpose in life. And so so that's, it's such a flourishing and suffering. Those are the two things that it, it's acknowledging that suffering is there and then and then also trying to move forward and make the most of a situation is... Mm -hmm is so important how how much of this is is uh, uh it, i i did i'll throw another thing at you um and uh, i i had uh so so i signed up for therapy recently just because i've always wanted to be in therapy but i'm on the road too much yeah. to you can't if you're my therapist and and okay, we're in Michigan together, that's fine. But when I'm in Alabama, yeah. now you can't legally. And so it's been now that I'm in one place for the first time ever, I can get there. I'm mostly like super curious and just want to mm -hmm. have interesting conversations with people, which I like my my first after a few things, there's like finally a therapist available for me. Yeah in like a few weeks because all you guys are so busy right now <laughs> yeah. that I, business that I, has never been better <laughs> but i kind of want to be like i don't think that i need this as much as like a lot of people do i mm. want it i'm curious but i don't want to like be taking up space from someone that i i like think i have things under control like uh, uh, but uh but anyway one of the things so regarding so I, I had suicidal thoughts from like since about the age of 10 i think i think i my my peak like risk was around the age of like 14 or so whereas if i was going to kill myself it probably would have been right around then and 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 have you know gone through the at the time not knowing if anyone else had this and then not knowing if like well everyone has these thoughts but they're they're hiding it and then realizing oh i think i have a few more than uh, <laughs> than everyone else and then uh, but you know it's it, it ends up being this journey of of uh of going well there's a few there's a few things that i like about it one having control over my mm -hmm. own death is amazing like I would love to live to the age of 70 and take my own life when I'm like terminally ill and get a chance to be like, hey, had a nice time, everybody. I just wanted to say bye to everyone. Thanks for having me here. Um, I'm peacing out. I'm uh, doing some, uh, gonna get some morphine and, and like mm -hmm. that. That seems so much, and it's so optimistic. That's assuming that I'm gonna live to seventy <laughs> right. years old. That's, that's right. so insanely optimistic that people are like, "Oh, that's dark. You shouldn't think about suicide." I'm like, I, I think I'm delusional in that I'm wish thinking that I'll 
that I'll live long enough to kill myself. <laughs> or I'm even be born. able to, right? Like, that's <laughs> yeah. the thing. I mean, didn't you just tell the story? You're the guy that breaks two feet on a hike. Right? I mean, <laughs> yeah, you got to get there. You can't walk there. <laughs> and, and then there's also just like, sometimes it's just curious. Sometimes I'm just like, boy, what is the difference between the thoughts that I'm having now and someone actually taking action? I don't mm-hmm. like, uh, there's like a curiosity of like, I wonder what those thoughts are. But but the the main one is I I eventually end up like well I don't want to do the collateral damage of other every everyone else suffering around me I wish that we lived in a society where I could be like hey I had a nice time took a look around forty now think you know I get it like I did the things it's pretty cool but you know I'm kind of over it nothing hey, you you guys did. Uh, there's <laughs> nothing you can say to talk to me. Uh, I've already right. thought through all of the things that you're going to say. Uh, I had a nice time. None of this is your fault. None of this is on you. I'm piecing out. And I know that I can't do that. And doing that, be, because I haven't, or I, I at least haven't figured out the way of conveying that uh, enough yet. And doing that makes me feel like very trapped here and everything else. And so I'm I'm getting just like an initial thing into into the therapy session um, to be set up with someone. And in the questionnaire um, was a question that was like, do you feel like trapped in existence or uh, some, something along those lines? I already like and- your therapist, whoever that is. It's a great, <laughs> great therapist. <laughs> and I was like, it was, it was a scale of four. It was like, no, some days, most days or every day. And I was, mine was like most days or something like that at the time. It was like, it caught me in a bad couple of weeks. Um, and, and like not and, and then at the end she was like okay all this all this looked normal i'm like oh that's normal uh, great like that uh, one that that was even on a questionnaire that that it's such a common experience that it was on a questionnaire and two me being on like the high but not extreme end of it is also within a normal range that made me feel so much better. It just like made me feel seen or yes. like heard, you know? Because I think uh, that's part of it, right? And that's what I'm saying. I like that therapist already because what I find when we had sought therapy before, now we have excellent therapists, but yeah. um, when we had sought therapy before, most of the times it freaked, freaked the crap out of them. Um, some of the stuff we'd ask or some of the questions because most people some people cannot handle, which is why people give you platitudes when you're struggling or those kinds of things, because they actually cannot handle the idea that people suffer in general. And so the people that actually, and that's what we posit in our book too, is uh, part of the work that we hope is to also educate therapists to say, you have to do your own existential work here too, because you know, believe it or not, therapists are humans. And so they have the same kind of uh, death denial that everyone else does. Um, And so for some people, they feel very uncomfortable when someone's struggling or someone's suffering. So the platitude is actually just because it shows more about them that they can't handle the suffering. And so what I have seen is exactly what you're saying for my clients, for the people that that have sat with us as we've struggled both together and individually, are the people that really don't say anything, but that can just allow 
allow our weeping and allow our angstiness and allow our questions to be explored. Um, that's, those are the people that, first of all, I want to hang out with, but then mm. too, they're the people that I actually find to be the most authentic as well. Um, mm. and so, yeah, that, that, the trapping and all of that, it's, it's, it's normal. I think it's part of our, our humanness. This is one of the um, the stages that you talk about, and maybe maybe we could um, touch on touch on this about because I also kind of want to know. I mean, we've already talked a little bit about what is the difference between you know what what the standard model was and and when when you uh, when you guys being experts in this were then faced <laughs> with your own personal journey, what 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 you found came up short and what what kind of revisions to those uh, models in your book think that might help other people uh, maybe in similar situations or just generally. But then I also, um, when you, oh shoot, what did you just say? It was the, oh, being authentic. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's something that I have in spades. And like, I, I, I think that, <laughs> I think that a lot of people um, uh, have uh, uh, like it and wish that they had more of it, mm-hmm. but it also seems to scare people. Like a lot of my friends, yes. when they ask me how I am, they are usually nervous because, like most people, when they when they're like, "Hey, how are you doing?" most people will be like, "Good." And my friends know that I will tell them exactly how I'm how I'm doing in that moment. And sometimes, and and so, but when I say that I'm feeling really good, people are like, "Oh." All right. Well, that <laughs> he, he means it. Like he doesn't just say he's feeling good if he's not feeling good. But when you talk about this, I, I thought maybe we could briefly, at least briefly, or as much as you want, talk about this journey of sunset, dusk, midnight, dawn, and daylight. Authenticism, kind of where that that is like toward kind of the end of the the journey, right? Yeah. So, right. So that our hope is that is one of the end results of moving through suffering. So with sunset, you, what's happening is you're trucking along, you've got your cultural worldviews. Your cultural worldviews are the ways in which you're trying to make sense of the world, right? They're ways that kind of help address these existential concerns. And we specifically chose the metaphor of darkness because so much uh, so much of our life and, and positive psychology really talks about like happiness and joy and gratitude. But we sort of pause it again. This is part of the second wave of positive psychology that actually you can't know those things unless you do know the darkness. And so these metaphors are based in, in darkness just as a, as a helpful guide for the reader, clinicians, for people too. So, so when you're, when you're uh, trucking along, you've got your worldview, you think that life is fair, that the world is just, that you're invulnerable, you know, all that nonsense. <laughs> then, <laughs> suffer- then suffering happens. It's, it's a sting, right? It's a shock. And what that does is, is it shows, is it violates those cultural worldviews. And what it does is it exposes them. And in many times it can shatter those assumptions that you've held. So then you kind of move into this, this, uh, this phase of what we call it dusk. And the idea here is you have to kind of make a decision. And the, the decision point is whether or not you're going to accept reality. And so th- 
if, if, if like we're on the highway of suffering, this is where most people get off on the exit. And, and I'll say this is where most therapies stop. Right. They, they kind of want you to accept it. Most people are really good at ignoring it, avoiding the pain, numbing it out. Or they'll rush to accept it. Like in the sense of like, I just accept that this is my lot in life and this is what's happened. And, but then they go back to the old, like the previous ways of thinking. So it's another form of like a ditch on the side of the road. If one ditch is nothing is this and like nihilism, the other ditch is like, everything's fine again because everything has a plan and a purpose. So they're both ditches on the side of the road. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. So it's like a superficial acceptance. That's not going to be helpful either. Because how can you accept that and, and then continue to hold the belief that you're invulnerable, the world is fair, the world is just. So kind of the, the meat of the work goes in um, the next two phases, which is a deconstruction and a reconstruction phase. And we think that this is this is probably the hardest part because what we're asking is for people to examine their beliefs and deconstruct and discard the ones that aren't holding up to reality. So if you believed in some type of benevolent, interpersonal, interactive God that always gave you what you wanted, that's probably not holding up to your reality if you got a terminal illness and have uh, young kids. Right. And I'll get a little personal. I don't know if you feel comfortable with this, so you can totally edit this out if you want to. I, you will be the first guest to ever make me uncomfortable if <laughs> it happens. So then, then we will throw confetti or something. <laughs> okay, great. Um, the belief that you're trapped here, that you couldn't yeah. just off yourself now. Uh huh. You you could do that, but yet you're still here. Yeah, like right. that 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 belief that you have isn't actually in reality. Right, right. It just right. perpetuates that feeling of trap. So that's where I put it. If I was if I was your therapist, that's something I'd ask you. It, that's the the existential yeah. yuck that I'm gonna be that I would type up. That's the question I'd ask you. Is you you could do it. Yeah, but not without the consequences of knowing the harm that it would that it would inevitably cause to other and and knowing that there's nothing that i could do or say to be there's no like a note that i could hey i'm a i'm a pretty decent writer like i i've, you can I've leave a brainstormed lovely like yeah I've, I've hashed out like clever ways of explaining <laughs> this and whatnot and they all they've all come up short so uh, what it is so is far. actually for you this is where i'd say that this was the, that deconstruction of was looking at that but maybe the reconstruction would be like it's the choice that then you choose to stay here mm -hmm. because you actually love those people so much you don't want them to suffer mm -hmm. so it's not a trapping it's a choice yeah yeah. And, and that's where the autonomy comes that. in with reconstruction, right? So people who are deconstructing oftentimes feel victims to they feel victim to their beliefs. But mm -hmm. then once you own your new beliefs, there's so much autonomy in that. Because if you say, like for you, like if you if this is again, you could totally edit this out, but like if you you want you're choosing to live here because you love your the people that that are in your life, that your friends yeah. that actually wanna know who you are, then there's so much freedom there to love them. Yeah, yeah. And, and, oh, and even like my listeners, it's like the listeners are on a journey with me and stuff. And like, there's all, I don't, I don't want 
whatever good advice that's been dispensed on this show, I don't want people to be like, well, none of that crap worked. I, I better avoid everything. <laughs> those are those are some of the numerous. Time will tell. Yes. They'll look back at this episode and they'll be like, ooh. <laughs> right. But, but oh, then they- there's, to, to tease apart the, yeah. the zillion warning signs that there's a bad <laughs> People are, it's, that'll be an impossible task to right. find the, ooh, we could have done said that there to stop that. No. Yeah. Again, because you have the choice. Like we all yeah. have, and that's the reality. The, the deconstruction is that we don't have a choice. And the reconstruction is we actually all have a choice. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so it's, it's assembling a new worldview, right? That's authentic and honors the suffering and the new reality that's been exposed in your suffering. And then you can live authentically. You live according to those values, right? And mm-hmm. so that that's where the flourishing can happen. Um, where you can still be sad and have a bad day and want to kill yourself, want to off yourself, and then, but you know you're choosing to be here for your friends and family. Mm-hmm. And so it's holding both that suffering of the darkness maybe that you feel and the exhaustion and the, the hopelessness and the reality of that with the fact that you love your your friends and they're mm-hmm. in your life. And so that's where I, I we we posit that that's that's where it's meaningful actually in our life. However mm-hmm. mundane and uh, insignificant that is, it's actually significant enough to keep living. I I find a lot of um a, a, a lot of grounding and resource just within the exploration of the complexity and nuance and and impermanence of of most things as well because i uh, it, it is that kind of state dependent memory too of uh, of your you're feeling suicidal temporarily and then and then you look back and you go oh here's all of these other times that i felt that way i guess i'm a suicidal person but that's mm-hmm. that's just because it's very easy to access those states when you're in that state you're happy often as well and right. and it's it's just when you're happy you're so busy feeling happy that you don't you don't look back and go what are the other times that I've been happy in my life like this? Oh, I guess I'm a happy person. Right. <laughs> right. And it's like oxygen, right? You don't miss it till it's gone. Yeah. Um, what are what are some of the things in your within your model that you yourself find the the most challenging within the adversities that you're uh, that you face where we're like you <laughs> like like you're in bed you're having a struggle you're talking about it and then uh, uh, one of you is like i don't want to fucking hear about the deconstructing <laughs> of the this and that that's right <laughs> um do you want to go first the first thing that you you said and it's probably maybe the most basic thing is sometimes i just don't want to suffer yeah. Like, I think that's the reality for me is I just, I think there are times where I'll be like, this is just too much. Like, I don't want to do it because it is flourishing and finding that middle and making the choice to still live and making the choice to still, I don't know, show up even when it's damn hard. I, I sometimes get tired. Mm. And so I'd say for me, sometimes it's, I do have a fantasy of just like, just living in the woods. I, that's that's my fantasy. Uh, I don't know why I think that's easier. It sounds terrible in Michigan in the winter, but um, 
I think for me, yeah, it's just. Oh, the, I've been thinking. Look at look at this <laughs> yeah, beard. beard. This yeah. is I. I am prepping for yeah. that uh, that right, woods <laughs> So yeah. I mean, I, so I think I think that's probably the most basic thing for me is I just think, and I I do I can get a little bit. I, I don't like this side of myself, but I can be somewhat of a martyr in the sense of like. I've had so much suffering. Why do I have to do it again? And a comparative to everyone, to other people, it's not like I'm fine. I have a job and have all these things, but sometimes it just hurts really hard. Yeah. And so I just, the energy, it does, it does take energy to choose a path towards flourishing and choose, choose a path towards existence even. And so I think for me, that's, that's where I find myself. I, I, I keep a blog on psychology today. And so sometimes I, I try to work that shit out on that blog. It's I've like, read your <laughs> blogs. Yeah, they're great. Yeah, yeah everyone should it, check a, it because you're you're both on psychology today. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I I sometimes will. I had some I, just a couple weeks ago. I had some horrible existentially angsty day where I was like going to the doctor for like some blood work because I. 38 and they had to do some cholesterol test like something pathetic so I like have to go to the doctor after fasting so I didn't get my coffee so I was really grumpy and I'm like driving to the doctor and you know we're in the midst of a effing pandemic and this woman was so beautiful and she's walking into her salon and god her hair looked beautiful and her body was gorgeous and I just thought what the fucking point is all of this? Like, why'd she put makeup on? Like, you know, we're all dying to case pieces of shit. Like, what's the point? And then I had to work it out with my, and I came home and like the tears were, and then just the dread and the yuck just filled me. And I just, what is yeah. the point of it all? Um, and ironically, I laugh so hard. It's like, those are not the blog posts that get all the hits. Um, and mm -hmm. I'll say that I do think it does take some courage to ask these kinds of questions because our human condition, our American Western condition are meant to solve and and look for the quick fixes in all of this. And so I think I fall prey to that when I, I struggle with even asking the question why or wanting to even do that work. So I, I don't know, maybe that's, I don't know, that, take that for what it is. <laughs> what about you? Uh, yeah, for me, the, the thing that I struggle with is um, if at the end of the day, anything is even meaningful. So, mm. um, I like to think about what's the point yeah. of doing these pointlessness studies yeah, exactly. anyway, I yeah. always build them up. You think yeah. that yeah. as soon as I figure out this and that about pointlessness, I'll finally have some value and uh, right. you got it. Yeah. yeah. It's we when you look at the, I, I know this is sometimes you wake up in the middle of the night and he just stares into the woods. Yeah. It's snowing, right? We've got like oh, in Michigan, it's just <laughs> snowing and I'm just like, man, the world existed just fine before I got here. It'll exist oh, yeah. just fine after I'm gone. Yeah. Am I even making a difference? Probably not. You know, or does it even matter if I yeah. do? <laughs> yes. Yeah. You know. So yeah, I think we're all yeah. Like like nihilism is a lot like Sheboygan, right? It's like a good layover, but you wouldn't want to live there, right? And no offense to anyone who's in Sheboygan, right? So like, you, know, you probably don't want to always be like living in the the threat that life is meaningless but that's where i yeah. tend to wade and so probably yeah. i i work really hard to convince myself otherwise yeah yeah i i yeah i'm usually just <laughs> like i i i guess i'm just usually like well at least i'm smart enough to recognize that a lot yeah. <laughs> a lot of these poor fools are that's walking right. around with no clue yeah. how pointless yeah. telling Until themselves they ridiculous this. stories <laughs> I mean, yeah. there's, there's, there's also, there's a few things going on. One of like, 
there is this uh, grinning and bearing of uh, that happens that like none of us are, um, you know, can talk about like the suffering that we're enduring because someone always has it worse. There's like this suffering contest that yeah, we always suffering have to, Olympics. Like... <laughs> yeah, and and that's always seemed like so silly mm -hmm. uh, to me and like this weird way of dismissing things that doesn't yeah. also doesn't like resonate with reality. But then there's also this. Uh, on the other end of it, there is this like, uh, yeah. I just I just had this um, woman Nina Pfefferman on, um, who's uh, spent a career mathematically modeling pandemics and and you know is a genius and has like fantastic, amazing um, solutions to many of our problems if if only people would listen <laughs> but 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 they cannot they can't model for like oh i didn't realize that masks were going to become a part of your political yes, identity yeah. and like rebel against this yeah, well, the math didn't account for that. Shame on me for thinking that you could just give people a very simple <laughs> solution and and they would and they would follow it. And and so so there's like at what point is some so we talked a little bit about um this isn't the word we did use the word maturity, but I think like what we were hinting at was like intellectual and emotional maturity which is independent of age where yeah. there's plenty of elder uh, old, old people like acting like a bunch of big babies and there's plenty of young people that are uh, you know toughing this out and doing what they have to do and at what point is like some of these things when you talk about being authentic co coherence coming to terms with living within this and then suffering within, um, uh, you know, hopefully suffering within, uh, or, or flourishing, suffering within flourishing. Yeah. That's, that's your next book. Up. Yes. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, um, I, at, at what point do you have to be like, well, grow up. Like this isn't, I'm sorry that you're telling yourself some story that you're covered in Jesus's blood. And that's why you get to go into a mega church but you're negatively impacting all of the rest of our lives. I'm, I'm sorry that you're, you're telling yourself this, like, like you never thought about mortality before. And now your bucket list is coming to the surface and gosh, darn it. This is the year you're, you need to go to Sturgis because right. you always wanted to go to Sturgis. Yeah. Like, right. well, I'm sorry, grow yeah. up. That's not, that doesn't, that's not in line with reality. You saw, you saw the 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 um, governor Newsom in California, like right after putting lockdown policies, he himself be a hypocrite and go to uh, go to a restaurant. Like, I'm sorry, vote him out next time. It doesn't mean you you don't throw the baby out with the bathwater because someone's a hypocrite doesn't mean masks don't work doesn't mean distancing doesn't work doesn't mean collecting together indoors is a good idea if if the if some politician that says uh you know the if if Fauci gets out and and says 
hey, getting together for the holidays is a high risk situation. And then and then someone uh, spies on him and finds out that he himself has gotten together for Christmas. Like it doesn't change the objective reality that like grow the fuck up. And, and, and so like what what of your. Uh, is is there any in your approach? Do you ever have to just have like tough talks with with people too? I mean, or or what aspects of this have you thought about within COVID, where now yeah. there's this global, um, uh, you know, mental health situation? Yeah. So to to borrow a phrase from Sheldon Solomon, who's one of the founders of terror management theory, he said people are either willingly ignorant or intellectually dormant if they don't realize these things right so yeah. it's, it's it's people who just don't have the intellectual capability to realize it and i feel bad if right. that's the case for anybody i just don't think that it is in <laughs> right. many which, many many cases which suggests that it has to be the 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 former which is that some people are just being willingly ignorant right so when you, when you remind people that they're going to die, they'll say like, oh, but I wear my seatbelt, I wear sunscreen, I get annual exams. And it's like, well, that doesn't change the reality that you're still destined to perish eventually, right? Yeah. And so I think we engage in like these really uh, immediate, like these proximal defenses that kind of push uh, these existential realities out of our conscious awareness. But then given enough time, they will start seeping back in. And that's when we rely on what's called more distal defenses. And these are things like our belief systems, uh, our worldviews, to try to keep those things at bay. But, but I do think that sometimes th we just need to have a, uh, a moment where we bring these things into our conscious awareness and we say, look, we need to handle this in a more mature way than just ignoring, denying, or avoiding the reality that um, that these that these existential realities are the, are just that they're truths they're not threats right these are mm. these are facts of life these are not things for you to be afraid of and the quicker you can come to terms with them and make them your friend instead of running from them then you can start living authentic life we we talk about it as existential resilience is that mm. like for me and I'm curious what it's like for you but for me. Uh, all of our suffering, I know this sounds silly, but this is this is how we've experienced it. We've talked to a couple of people and this is how they also experience it. It's like me, I got to stay indoors and I need to follow these things and because this is going to be hard. Okay. I, I, mm. I've, I've done harder things, like to be honest. And this is, um, it's not, it's not that hard, but I know for some people it's like cost of living of jobs and all these things that they have to make these decisions. So I, I do recognize my privilege in that. And I will say this is that we live in, and this is where I, this is not in the book. This is podcast special. I, I've been really wrestling with this a lot lately is capitalism sells us all the ways to avoid all of these truths. And so the ideas of saving the economy, and I, I'm sure maybe we'll get hate mail from all the economists out there, but like the idea that saving the economy, the idea that we have to uh, put these things over and above our own lives, our own well-being, and that our government actually is doing that without even supporting their own citizens. Um, we It puts, cap capitalism is a way to like, 
you don't need a mask. You'll be fine. It's just buy these other things and all these vitamins and all these yeah. naturopathic. You'll be fine. Yeah. You know, build up your immune system. Just spend all your money or keep the economy alive as you um, spend on your local economy. I, I get that. I understand that. But then on the other hand, I think, well, what about those poor workers that are having to do the work and put their lives on risk to, to serve the food that I'm paying to spend under the economy? Like yeah. there's a there's an economic capitalistic bent that I think distracts our humanity, specifically for me, I'll name this, has exposed that related to COVID yeah. is that capitalism is a system in which is bent towards answering some of these questions for us in a very oppressive way. Yeah. Um, and so that's what I think about when I think when I'm thinking about all of this. Um, I, I'd also uh, I'd also tell people that, you know, if if the economy uh, one, uh, like if the economy is is this factor, like one, uh, look into economics, I would say I, I, I haven't seen a, a, a very um, I haven't seen a very convincing case um, that that masks are bad for the economy. Right. I, I, I haven't I haven't seen a convincing case that that low COVID numbers um, uh, uh, also uh, that that high COVID numbers somehow still like help, uh, are, are have like no economic <laughs> impact. Right. It's and, it's yeah. dependent on consumer. It's it's um, uh, consumer confidence is so tied to and there's cross-cultural like if you care about the economy then look into economics damn it and right. and, and you better look at what taiwan's doing and they their economy is flourishing mm -hmm. instead of comparing to sweden where they're like oh they didn't do much in sweden like well their economy was hit just as hard as we are because they're they have huge COVID numbers yes. so people aren't going out even if they're legally allowed to so if you want to say we better ignore COVID for the economy then you better damn well know what you're talking about mm -hmm. with the <laughs> economics well, and, and you better a, be sure that like, you're right with the mask thing that's what i think about is it's a visible reminder of our immortality yeah, and so that's I what I think people are for people. freaking out about and because yeah. they, they, they do you'll 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 have people that maybe will wrestle with it will ask you know even people on different political spectrums that will ask those questions very critically and thoughtfully but then you will have the people that will react and my guess as a therapist is they're probably reacting in other ways in their life as well yeah. um and I think you know then you have capitalistic structures that amplify that like political parties and those kinds of things um yeah. but but you're right i mean i think it's it, it is it's the threat of our mortality that this has exposed and so many people just prefer to stick their head in the sand but the truth is we will all die someday <laughs> yeah and and i mean in terms of you mentioned kind of the just world hypothesis earlier and and that i mean that also leads to victim blaming right. and and that's like i i have a so i mean i've lost i haven't lost everything i've lost all of my income mm -hmm. because of because of covid mm -hmm. and 90 95% of my income is from live touring and uh and you know i think that i'm making the most of things and taking care of myself and writing a book and making improvements in my podcast and i even with losing all of my income, I don't think that it's that 
bat, or at least I can find some silver line. Meanwhile, I have like a person in my life who who uh, who I know that got COVID is like at a maskless at a at a wedding, like a, a mega person that got COVID, still doesn't have their taste or smell <laughs> um, back months later or energy back, and it's still just because it's their. Po- political talking points like oh it's like the flu sure i'm not out of the woods yet (laughs) but it's like the flu and then and then she's like well i know my husband can't get it because he's been around um uh, uh, first this person's like oh i'm a homebody anyway i like like we're talking about being like i'm a homebody like you don't even have like this person (laughs) is like never worked a day in their life anyway and then and then they also were like uh Oh my! My husband can't get it because he was around me. He's been around all these other people with COVID. Like, first off, maybe he's spreading it. Second, <laughs> being around—that's nothing to brag about. If right. to be like, oh, we tend to hang around tons of people that get COVID and disregard all all of everything that we're supposed to do to be helping each other out and cooperating for the greater good. And you're bragging about not only is he not doing that, but hanging around a bunch of other imbeciles that don't and then and then and then like their uh their daughter who's like privileged enough to uh, have traveled and uh, studied abroad and all of these things and and like well she can't get COVID because she's already been to all these other countries and eaten bugs and stuff like that's not (laughs) how COVID works but it's the reason I bring it up is is not to like shit on this person, but just to say that like it is more important for someone to believe mm-hmm. that the people that they care about can't get COVID or if they right. don't do won't be negatively impacted by it than to do the smallest amount of actual action right. to yeah. prevent it from happening. Like grow yeah. the fuck up, and that and that's just how intertwined our beliefs are, right? Because if if you start acknowledging the fact that you're wrong about that belief, oh, imagine the the threads. That's what I was thinking. I was, talking, I was like, the threads of that would yeah. pull on that person. Oh, yeah. just devastating. <laughs> because then, if if you just fast forward, then you you might also be wrong about the big beliefs, like the beliefs about yeah. like, what happens after you die, or is my life worth anything? And, and we will hold on, and we will fight to tooth or nail we will deny reality we will we will not do the simplest things just in order to protect the veracity and validity of our worldviews and not allow an inch of potential possibility that we could be wrong which yeah. is also why we double down uh, and we derogate and denigrate people who hold opposing views and we treat them as less human because if one of us has to be right and one of us has to be wrong it's not me who's going to be wrong it has to be them yeah. And the and the and how powerful those beliefs are, and how something is as stupid as a small belief there being uh, related to something so broad, can show just uh, how defensive we can actually get in the service of these existential realities. It's also it's also just I I I think that it's harder. People would rather avoid feeling or looking or sounding stupid yes than actually being stupid like show i have to feel stupid all of the time (laughs) because everyone i talk to knows more about the subject that we're talking about than than i do and afterwards 
Uh, like I can put on the thing and deliver this confidently. Afterwards, I will hate most of the things that I said. <laughs> I, I I will think of all of the things that I should have said. Yes. It'll be insufferable yes. for a little while. <laughs> but then afterwards, I could at least be like, well, that's a part of growing and yeah. you know whatever. Right. Yeah. yeah. A true. human condition does not like pain. I mean, <sighs> that's that's the reality. And you know, I I also think the reality is we don't grow unless we wrestle with that, right? So if we're so, I, I often say this, if we're so tied to belief more than reality, then we will always choose our belief over reality. But if we keep in an ultimate search of trying to find reality, so finding friends that are different than us, finding uh, communities that may be different than us, reading people that are different in thought. And so those ways we can challenge ourselves having podcasts, having different people that are different intelligent levels and all sorts of uh, specialties, those are the things that are going to acclimate us to what it feels like to be in some form of, of, of suffering. Because there is a distress tolerance that has to come with that, um, that we as humans, especially in modern America, uh, apparently can't handle. And so <laughs> we have to build it very slowly. So I often say to people, one very basic way of building your distress tolerance, and this is based off of our work of our friend, Nathan DeWall, he he talks about um, his work is all on emo like regulation and those kinds of things. And he just try writing with your non-dominant hand or just uh, try typing on your computer standing on one foot. Just try that. <laughs> and that's not, that's not suffering. But what I'll say is you will see how agitated you become after you do that for a while. Um, yeah. Or don't eat lunch uh, for 30 minutes till after you're supposed to have eaten, right? Like those are the things that we as humans, we avoid pain even on the most basic level. And so for things that for this woman, for this friend that you're talking about, that would just unravel her, she will hold on to the beliefs more than reality. And so, I mean, we all do this to some degree, myself included, which is one of the reasons why I, I do love my job, because I get to meet people from all different belief systems and thoughts and religions. And so it's constantly challenging me. And to me, that's my favorite part of my job mm -hmm. um, is to interact with different people. Um, but I don't think we as humans do that enough. Um, and it could be hilarious to be vulnerable. I, I, <laughs> I, I play uh, this summer. I was playing a fair amount of pickleball with my with my brother in law, who who uh, is also bubbled up real hard. Takes things super seriously, and we uh, we uh, we often throw the ball uh, like uh, to one another with a non-dominant hand yeah. just because it's the most <laughs> hilarious <laughs> thing so you can yes. try something new yes. you can rewire that neuroplasticity <laughs> and right. have a laugh along the way exactly um is there anything that you guys wanted to uh plug or closing things as as we wrap up um websites any anything else uh, just the book again is the Courage to Suffer, a new clinical framework for life's greatest crisis is is there yeah. do you have Thank you. Uh so I have Psychology a Today blog. Yeah. yeah. So we both have our Psychology Today blogs. Um mine's called The Courage to Suffer. So there's there's that. It's pretty easy to find. I think uh I've got a website daryvantongren.com uh, or you can follow me at uh at Tongren on Instagram or at dr van tongeren on twitter yep and then i have an instagram and it's at the existential therapist 
Um, so you're welcome to follow follow us there. My website, sarahvantongren.com. And um, I just... Uh, I got to follow you on Instagram. Yeah, please do. Yes. I, I found you. So I'm following you. So we should... Oh, really? That would be okay. great. Yeah. Um, and then I think, too, for your readers or for your listeners, what I'd say is the biggest thing if they could take home is to, to challenge themselves in some ways. And I, I think that's what I'd say even about our book is... Just like it's scary to think about death, it's scary to think about these things. But if we can embrace existential fears as realities, I think we can start to uncover uh, maybe some of the stigma or fears or defenses that we feel. But the most important thing is just to remain open, open to all of that. And maybe yeah. practice throwing the pickleball with the other hand. Yeah. <laughs> I, I would just love for these conversations to be out in yeah. the public, but I would love to like tune into like the <laughs> local news tonight. And then be like, hey, does any of this even mean anything? Yeah. Hey, here's this expert. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, there was a there was a pileup on the interstate, but I mean they were gonna die anyway. <laughs> um yeah, I I think that, that that your your book's already been really, really helpful for me. And I, I think that uh gosh, another another one of the things when you talked about the the reframing and every it is I, I think that I think that for anyone worried about like letting go of something that is, is so fundamental part of their identity and then because I talk with people all the time that that will be like, well, what if none of this means it, it, it's like you can give up your or, or like I've had things that have I've had religious experiences that have made me question my or spiritual experiences that have made me uh, question um i've done a lot of drugs uh <laughs> that have made me question uh you know my views too mm -hmm. and i i'll tell you you can like give up a little bit of the grip on a view and there'll be no shortage of new yes. ideas of meaning right That's around right. the corner that yeah. will reassemble yes. and be there for I you. I do Absolutely. too. I think that's, and I think what I'd say to let go of the grip does take courage. That's sort of where the title of our book came from is, um, it was a Viktor Frankl quote actually, um, is, is, is that, uh, for, what if we say it? Uh, yeah, so Victor Angro says, there is no need to be ashamed of our tears, for tears bore witness that a person had the greatest of courage, the courage to suffer. And so to let go of some of those things that we all as humans hold with a death grip really is, it's, we, we like to take that as it's, it's because the things are true and that's why we're holding on to it. But I think it's more because we're afraid mm -hmm. and that's why we're holding on to it. And so to let go of it, like you said, there is, there is more things around the corner. I mean, I'll say this professionally and personally, I think that we, I can confidently say that that's true. Yeah. And it's not like, oh, and we've arrived and it's a symbol. Cause anytime I do that, something else, boom, just it's, it's random. And so like, it will continue to evolve. And I think that's, that's one of the coolest things about being human is that we actually don't know much. And so we can, if we can pause it as a learning and as growth and all that, it can actually be quite exciting. Hmm. And Van Tongren, by the way, is T O N G E R E N. Yeah. What is that name? Uh, it's Dutch. This? Yeah. So uh, if you, yeah. So Van is the, the first yeah. part. Yeah. Daryl, Daryl's, Daryl's yeah. mom and 
father immigrated from, uh, or your mom immigrated from the Netherlands. So well, yeah, and so ended up at Hope College. Yeah. So that's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, thank you for, for giving me and the listeners a bit of hope and uh, for sharing your personal journey and struggles and writing this terrific book. And thank you listeners for being such wonderful, curious people. We'll talk with you next week. Thank you. Thank you guys for watching the show. Next week, we're going to be talking about wearables for health. Using wearables to detect when you have a virus, when you have something like COVID or anything. Colds, Lyme disease, all sorts of stuff. Long before you would have symptoms. That's one of the many things that we talked about in an absolutely fantastic conversation. And so I, uh, I hope that you tune in. I hope that you, uh, it's with Michael Snyder, by the way, professor at Stanford Health. Super cool. I can't wait. I want to be a cyborg, guys. I got to be straight up. Uh, that's something I, I don't talk about it a lot on the show. I'd like to be a cyborg. So, yeah, that's just who I am, and you need to know that about me. And, oh, uh, boy, what else? Oh, Patreon. If you want to support me and pay for this show, you can support me on Patreon. Be nice to turn a profit on this show one of these days. <laughs> uh, but I'm grateful for all of you in whatever you can do. And... um but yeah, your support on Patreon might, uh, if one day, covers the cost of this podcast and even my livelihood, it will also help turn me into a cyborg, starting with just getting a Fitbit for however much those are, which I now need after doing this interview, which you're going to love. I now know that I need a Fitbit uh, or whatever the comparable best things are. So uh, check out next week's show, hear all about that, leave comments, ask questions, follow me on Instagram. I'm really close to uh, my 10,000 followers that I need on Instagram to be able to have this swipe up feature, to be able to include links and videos and just make everything easier for myself and followers on there. They, they make you have 10,000 followers to be X level of influencer to unlock these sorts of things. So, well, whatever, whatever it is, that's the way that it goes. And so it's not just, this isn't just me. Uh, this isn't some vanity uh, goal. Look at me. I have 10,000 people following me. Aren't I special? Nope. This is me. Uh, trying to do more special things for you and you being able to take in more special things from me with unlocking this special thing that requires having 10,000 followers, not the idea that 10,000 followers is anything uh, special or not special. <laughs> what am I talking about? Uh, I don't know, guys. Um, yeah, that's that.
Uh, write me reviews. Take care of yourself. Be nice to one another. And if you don't feel like being nice to one another, get on Twitter. Follow me there. Let's be pricks to one another. <laughs> um, all right. I'm getting goofy in this outro. Getting loose. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. That's it. That's it. There's always a time where you go, do you stop? Do you re-record? There's valuable information I could present in a more conscientious way. Conscientious? Concise. Concise way. Then you make a mistake. Like, eh, well, that's, that's another in the column of... That's one more on the, in the column of re-record. <laughs> now I'm laughing about it. That goes in the column of... Eh, no, I think we put it out as is. I kind of like when I say something off. And then we get to have a little fun with that. So, hmm. Yeah. No, I think this is going out. <sighs> this is more intense for me than it is for you. I'm sure you're... But for me, oh, I don't... Do I Do I send it? Do you hit send? At this point, still. Do you hit send? Yeah. I already if you're watching this, I already did. I already committed. <laughs> All right. I'm goofy today. Uh, you guys are awesome. I'm not even on drugs. I'm talking like you'd think if I listened to me, no, not me. If I listened to someone else, I know me and that this is just like normal things that go in my head. But if I listened to someone else talking like this publicly, I'd be like, is everything, everything okay? But um, for me, I'm like, no, this is oh, good. Good for you. Good for you putting your regular old thoughts out there <laughs> for people, for people to sift through, make sense of. Good for you letting people know that you overthink every damn thing because they weren't already aware of that. Those of you that listen all the way to the end, you are, of course, my favorites.